0: Welcome to Vision is More Than 2020, a podcast aimed at talking about your vision, your eyes, and how they play a role in overall visual and systemic function. Dr. Linnicki and Lakowski, with the help of various guests, will work to help you understand more about your visual system and all the pieces to the vision puzzle. Hi, guys. Welcome to this week's episode of Vision is More Than 2020. We are going to be tackling strabismus today. But before we do that, let's talk about weekly insight. So this one is sort of fun. I want to talk about swim lessons and how important they are for your kids. I know it seems a little odd, right, because we talk about eyes. But you know, Dr. L and I are moms and it's very much a part of our life. And both of our kids have started swim lessons. So I have someone coming to the house to work with Daisy and John, and it's just a half hour once a week, but I've already seen the difference in how they approach water. And I'm seeing them, even Johnny Anthony, who is 18 months, he's learning how to kick. And he, when I'm in the pool with him, If I bring him to the side of the pool, he's pulling himself out of the pool. They are teaching them survival skills in the water. And I think it's so, so important, especially us on the east end of Long Island. We are surrounded by water, surrounded by pools, bays, oceans, everything. I really want for my children to feel safe in the water. So I am a big
1: advocate for swim lessons and I'm sure Dr. L is too. Oh, I agree. I think I started studying some lessons very recently this summer, and he's 19 months old now. And some people said, oh, that's like a little soon. What could he be learning? But I have the same thought process as you. We live on Long Island. We're surrounded by water. And my husband's off in the summertime. He's a teacher. So we're going to the beach. We're going to pools on the weekend. So I really wanted that safety piece. Um, And I think it's always a little bit easier to kind of remove yourself from lessons like that and have someone else do it because learning to swim, you know, isn't always fun. You know, submerging your head underwater and learning how to do that. you're going to have to swallow a little bit of water the first couple times, you know, and you're probably going to cry a little bit when that happens. So I think it's a little easier to take like the parent piece out, have someone else do that lesson. But Teddy's been also thriving, learning how to get in out of the pool, kicking on his own. And it's really, really cool to see how much they can learn even at such a young age. Yeah, no, it's
0: it's really cool. And I agree. I like lurk from the inside of the house and I like watch. And uh, my swim instructor was super sweet. She was like, Just so you know, it's totally normal if Johnny Anthony cries the whole time. And I was like, okay. And I will say the first lesson was really hard to watch because not only was he in a pool with a stranger, right? Like, and I just had to like walk away. That was like startling for him. But then once he was actually swimming, he was fine. It was just me actually removing myself. But again, I was like turkey lurking in the window watching him. Uh, But it's really, really wonderful. Uh, So our advice is to get your kids in water as soon as possible with a trained professional to really teach them to be comfortable in the water.
1: So now we are going to be talking about all about strabismus. We're actually going to cover this over two episodes because there's just so much content to talk about. So today we're really going to be focusing on the workup and the basics of a strabismus exam. So first, let's talk about what strabismus is. So strabismus is very commonly known as an eye turn. And it's simply when your eyes are not lined up properly. The two eyes are not aligned together and they point in different directions from each other. One eye can look straight ahead, while the other eye can actually turn in, turn out, up, or down, and this misalignment can actually shift from one eye to the other eye. So the eye that is aligned and appearing straight ahead can shift from your right eye to your left eye if you have an alternating eye turn. If you have just a unilateral eye turn where it's only affecting one eye, that one eye will be the one that turns in, out, up, or down. Now, When you have strabismus, it can actually affect your visual acuity, so how well you can see, typically in the eye that turns more often or the eye that's turned can have reduced vision because it's not getting the same kind of stimulation to the brain. And it can really impact your visual function because we were really designed as two-eyed humans. Uh, We have two eyes for a reason. It really helps us see in depth better and judge space better. So if the two eyes are not aligned together, you're going to lose on, on a depth and 3D vision piece.
0: Yeah. And I always like to tell people this because I don't think they know that the eyes actually have six muscles that control our eye movements, which I know when I was in optometry school, I was like, whoa, that's so cool. So now we have one muscle that moves the eye to the right, one eye that moves the eye to the left. And then there are four muscles that move the eyes up, down, and kind of all around. So in order to focus on a single image, all six muscles have to work together, and all six of those muscles can be affected through stribismus for all different reasons. So we need to make sure that all of those muscles are working properly. So let's jump into the workup. Now, this is going to be very extensive because strabismus patients are kind of complicated, Um, but the very first step in any evaluation is the case history. And when it comes to strabismus, this is probably the most important piece of our exam because this really helps us to understand the age of onset of the eye turn. Any previous surgeries, any treatment modalities? When does the eye turn happen? Is it all the time? Is it some of the time? And it really gives us a good understanding of how the patient is functioning because we see them on such a small snapshot, right? Like we're lucky, Dr. L, because we see patients for like an hour to two hours. Most eye appointments are like 15 minutes. So that is such a short time period to really understand how a patient is functioning throughout their day in all different scenarios. So the case history, if we have any parents listening, really try to pay attention to these things before you get to the evaluation. Like know when you started to see that that eye turn. Is it worse in the morning? Is it worse at nighttime? Is it worse when he's looking up close or in the distance? Do do they close an eye? Is there any family history of strabismus? All those things are really, really important. And I really like to highlight that time of onset for our patients with eye turns that turn in for esotropic patients. And the reason being is because that really helps us to understand the etiology and can help to dictate our treatment modalities and our expectations for these patients. We know, for example, like infantile esotropia, esotropia that occurs before the age of one can have less ability for binocular function because of the way that they had their visual experience very early on. Or if they developed the eye turn between two and three, that's more indicative of something called an accommodative esotropia or that there is an underlying prescription. And we could, for those patients, sometimes we can treat them that eye turn simply with a pair of glasses. So really understanding that that onset of the strabismus is important and, and really important also for our adult patients, because if they had a, if they've never had an eye turn, and then all of a sudden they have an eye turn, that's an ocular emergency that we really need to understand what that systemic etiology is. That's not normal. As an adult, it's not normal to all of a sudden have an eye turn. So that time of onset is really, really important to highlight and to understand from a parent's perspective, as well as the practitioner's perspective. right now the next thing
1: that we are looking at in our evaluation is where is the eye turning so the eye could be turning out that we call exotropia it could be turning in which is called esotropia or there could be a, a vertical misalignment that either a hyper or a hypotropia where the eye is turning up or turning down the next thing we look at is really how big the eye turn is or the magnitude so we're really evaluating how large this misalignment or eye turn is between the two eyes at all different distances. So we really evaluate that in the distance and up close because it's not always the same. And, you know, know, we really talked about this a lot in uh, an episode prior where we really ran through all binocular vision disorders and we really highlighted how misalignment in the eyes can impact near versus distance and all the different diagnoses associated. So make sure you go back and listen to that one.
0: Yeah, and then a really other big piece is the constancy of the deviation. So what do we mean by that? Is it happening all the time or some of the time? Uh, Because this, again, will really help to dictate our treatment. We like to say that alternating and intermittent is the most ideal because that allows for some time for normal binocular fusion and binocular development to happen. So again, alternating and intermittent is really the most ideal if you're going to have a strabismus. The one that is hardest to break and treat is when there is a constant turn that is only in one eye. That is definitely really, really difficult because the brain has said like that eye just doesn't want to work. I'm just going to shut it off, right? Because then adaptations happen. And another one that we like to highlight is cometency. So what that word means is is the eye turn the same in all different gazes? And this is a good indication how long the deviation has been present. We often see in our strabismus patients that they are comatant, meaning it is the same in all different gazes as it as it should be. If it's non-comatant, meaning it's better in one gaze versus the other, that might warrant some further testing As that might be indicative of more serious etiology, and we often see noncomitancy with our sudden onset strabismus patients, Um, but it's always something that we look for
1: to really understand uh, what the potential etiology is for the eye turn. Right, that noncomitancy patient is one that we might recommend a neurological workup because it may mean there's something going on, beyond the eye itself, that's really affecting those eye muscles and maybe affecting just one or a couple of those muscles and why it's showing us a strabismus that changes when you look up, down, left, or right. Now, the next thing we always look at is your visual acuity. Um, like I mentioned before, some cases of strabismus can be accompanied by amblyopia or a reduced visual acuity in an eye. This is more of a concern in those constant unilateral strabismus patients like Dr. Zelnikyi had talked about, because in those patients, you have one eye that's aligned and looking straight ahead, that's giving really great feedback, you know, all through that eye to the optic nerve, to your brain. The eye that's turning the majority of the time, if that's the one eye that's turning the most is not sending that same signal from your eye to your brain. Um, And your brain is really smart. It doesn't like to see double because if it's paying attention to the images from each eye equally, you're going to get double vision wherever you're looking. And that's really confusing for your brain. So your brain is really smart and starts to develop some adaptations, um, one of which is a process of suppression, which can start to decrease the vision in that eye because your brain starts to continue to weaken the signal from that eye to the brain, so you're not paying attention to that retinal image as much, and you're just using the eye that's looking straight ahead, the image from that eye. So that's a really big concern of something that can be occurring in someone with strabismus. With someone who has more of that intermittent eye turn, where the eyes are not always turning, there are times that the eyes are aligned together, so you're getting a really great retinal image from each eye to the brain, or if you have that alternating eye turn that means that sometimes your right eye is getting a good retinal image, sometimes your left eye is, but at least each eye is getting stimulated some of the time. So the chances of having reduced visual acuity in those cases are much lower. Right. And on that note
0: of adaptations, right? The brain is so smart. Uh, It really is, right? It just, it doesn't want to see double. It doesn't want to see blurry. And it makes these crazy adaptations to ensure that that doesn't happen. So something that we look at is Fixation or centration and something called correspondence. Now, these topics are very in-depth, but I think it's important to highlight them to, especially for patients who have strabismus and might look at their records and see all of these acronyms and say, like, what is that? Uh, So, when we look at, uh, let's start with fixation. So fixation is a monocular phenomena. So the your doctor may cover one eye and look at if you're using your central point to fixate. Sometimes when we have reduced visual acuity from that eye not working as well, uh, we tend to use a off-axis point to fixate. If, and it could be unsteady or steady. Um, but it helps the doctor to understand how you're utilizing that eye. So on your records, you might see like central steady fixation or unsteady central or unsteady eccentric fixation. Now, that is something that we can train out through vision therapy and we'll discuss that, but we really want that central steady fixation because that allows for the best visual acuity in that eye. Now, the next one is called correspondent. And it is called retinal correspondence, but really it's further back in the brain. And this is a very difficult topic to understand for those optometrists listening. I'm sure there might be shaking in their boots if they don't do binocular vision very often uh, because it's complicated. It's really how the brain utilizes the visual information is the, the straight ahead point in both eyes aligned at the same point. At the same point. And when you have an eye turn, sometimes your brain makes these adaptations where you have an anomalous point aligning with a foveal point um, or that straight ahead point. And this can be where we have something called harmonious retinal correspondence, where you think that you're straight. And your brain has no idea that your eye is turned in and you have like this pseudo like binocular vision. It's kind of an interesting thing. But then there are others that are non-harmonious where it's like sort of aligned, but not in your brain. And then we have another one called paradoxical retinal correspondence, which often happens after surgery, where you might've been exotropic before, but now you from the surgery with the eye having been manually moved, you start to act almost like an esotrope. It's very confusing and very difficult, but all of these things can happen. And again, I know this is a kind of a, a deep topic for a podcast, but I really wanna highlight that this is what your doctors are looking at, that they are trying to understand how, when especially when you have strabismus, what adaptations you've made to be successful, and if it's worth time and energy to break those down to get you back to normal binocular vision. Because that's always the question with strabismus, how close to normal binocular vision can we get you so that you're clear and comfortable in your viewing environment? So again, this is a very deep topic, but it's something that is a big question that binocular vision docs have to understand for their patient because it really helps to dictate their treatment modalities.
1: Right. And I think that's an important piece to highlight because you know, not every strabismus really goes through the same treatment plan. And, you know, we really didn't talk too much at the beginning about symptoms that a strabismic patient have, but at the end of the day, they may be completely asymptomatic, except for the cosmesis of that eye turn. And that's what brings a lot of patients in. But if you've had strabismus for a long time, or your brain has adapted quickly, you may have these adaptations that Dr. Zonicki went through where, you're suppressing that eye or you learn to use a different retinal point and assigned it to that eye. So you're not seeing double and you don't think that you see blurry because you just pay attention to the image from the clear eye. So it is possible to see double when you are strabismic, but a lot of them are not symptomatic except for that cosmesis piece. which can be tricky because in our next episode, we're going to talk about treatment modalities. And there's a few that kind of treat that cosmesis better than others. But as, you know, binocular vision specialists, we are really looking at how the two eyes are working together because it's really the most efficient way for your visual system to function. So another important thing that we... Always assess during a strabismus workup is your 3D vision, or as we call it, your stereopsis, and this is really key. And this is the area that we really are working on in a vision therapy program, typically with strabismus. We're trying to build these levels of 3D vision. So you can only have good stereopsis or 3D vision if the two eyes are perfectly aligned together. That's the only way that you see in depth. Is if your brain is receiving an image from your right eye and your left eye equally, and it's fusing it into one 3D image. So any misstep between the two eyes is going to affect your stereopsis. And there's actually different levels of 3D vision or stereopsis. So the first level is called simultaneous perception. This is purely just that both eyes are seeing an image and the brain is paying attention to both eyes at the same time. So we can tell my right eye is seeing something and my left eye is telling something. The next step is called flat fusion. This is again, where both eyes can see an an image, but it can be joined together. So your brain is taking the image from your right eye and left eye, paying attention to both eyes and it morphs it into one nice image for you, but no depth perception yet. That comes with the last level where your true stereopsis comes in. And that's where you're fusing the image from your right eye and left eye with that 3D depth piece. And that's really our goal that we're trying to get to with our strabismic patients when we're doing a, a course of vision therapy.
0: Yeah. And the reason why that is our goal is because when you have stereopsis, your eye turn is more likely to not occur because the, the brain is like, oh, this feels nice. This is how I'm supposed to be seeing. And it's really the glue that holds together your visual system.
1: This episode is brought to you by Luminous. For over 50 years, Luminous has developed innovative gold standard devices for eye care, like the first SLT laser, the first argon laser photocoagulator, and the revolutionary dual path SLT and YAG laser. Luminous, the inventor of intense pulse light, or IPL, is proud to announce the first and only IPL system to receive FDA approval for management of dry eye disease and to launch OptiLight, a bright solution for dry eyes. Optulite uses Luminus' patented Optimal Pulse technology to allow consistent, precise, and controlled treatment. If your patients suffer from dry, gritty, tired eyes, and dry eye disease due to meibomian gland dysfunction that is impacting their quality of life and their vision, Optiolite puts the power for treating dry eye disease in the palm of your hand. Optulite breaks the dry vicious cycle of inflammation and delivers improvement in tear breakup time and other clinical signs of dry eye disease. To learn how you can elevate dry eye management with OptiLite, visit luminous.com/optilite.
0: And lastly the the i always say this is like the last piece to the puzzle is sort of what we always do right we we look at your eye movements to make sure there's no restrictions uh we're checking that near point of convergence we're looking at your pupils and we're looking at your ocular motor system we're looking at uh all the pieces to that so again your fixation your smooth pursuits how you jump from one thing to the other called your saccades we look at your focusing muscle as well often we find that the focusing muscle in that strabismic eye can be reduced. So we want to evaluate that as well, as well as looking at how well compensated you are with those fusional ranges. And interestingly, I think it's important to highlight that patients that have a strabismus also sometimes have perceptual dysfunctions, meaning how they process their vision, right? Because they're not really gathering their visual information accurately uh, or efficiently, right? Because they're using one eye or their two eyes are kind of fighting with each other to gather that visual information. So that takes away some energy in what they're seeing. And then it's harder for them to process it. So we often also do a perceptual evaluation that really looks at all of their other, the other stuff for, you know, their, their visual memory, their, figure ground skills, their form closure, their visual motor integration skills. Because again, strabismus can affect all of these things. Uh, And even though they are functioning well, right? Dr. L had alluded to the fact that sometimes these patients aren't symptomatic. They're not seeing double, they're not getting a headache, but their performance might be less than where they want to be because of the strabismus. So that is also a piece to the puzzle to really kind of wrap up the evaluation. And you could probably tell by the amount of talking Dr. L and I have been doing about this evaluation that it is extensive. This is not something that is done in five minutes. It is a very, very lengthy exam to really understand the patient, the adaptations, and how they're using their vision and what level of vision and visual function they have.
1: right, so now that we've kind of walked you through what the workup looks like, and now we kind of talked about what types of deviations we may see and potential adaptations of what a brain can do when you have strabismus, we are going to wrap up this episode, and then make sure you tune in next week because we're going to talk all about our treatment plan. Talk to you guys next week. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening. Join our private Facebook group, Vision is More Than 2020, and follow us on Instagram. For additional content, check out our practice, Twin Forks Optometry, on both Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe, download, and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Tune in next week to learn more about your vision.